The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. We are walking ecologies. They want to work with you, particularly if you'll put your face on their campaign. You know, there are billions of microbes in us that are not human. They understand the value of a brown indigenous face. The sort of myth-making of capitalism is such that we are separate from the rest of the world. But as soon as you start to tell them to hand over power, that's where the phone calls dry up, the emails stop being returned. If we're interested in transforming our consciousness so that we can reconnect with the planet, that's not something you sit on a couch and do. Hello and welcome to the Verso podcast. I'm Eleanor Penny. In 1550 at Valladolid in Spain, two men of God named Bartolomé de las Casas and Juan Ginés de Sepulveda debated whether or not indigenous people were in fact people, or whether they were another part of natural wealth to be dominated, claimed and exploited by colonial ventures. Sepulveda claimed that some of his fellow human beings were in fact, and I quote, Slaves by nature, uncivilised, barbarian and inhuman. Supposedly at stake here were the moral, religious and political bases of the encomienda system of forced labour and land grabs by which Spain was ruling its colonies overseas. Both sides claimed the moral victory in the debate, but colonial rule continued. Now, nearly 500 years later, devastating climactic events are unfolding around us, Rivers and seas are choking with trash, and the sixth major extinction of planetary life is in full swing. How might those two moments in history be connected? And who wins from an ideology that strictly separates out the categories of humanity and nature? To delve into these questions and many more, I talked to Raj Patel and Tina Ngata. Raj Patel is an author, filmmaker and academic and a research professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. His books include The Value of Nothing, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, co-authored with Jason W. Moore, and Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, co-authored with Rupa Maria. Tina Ngata is a Maori activist from Teika Amaui. She's an organiser, a writer and an advocate for environmental, indigenous and human rights. She's the author of Kia Mao, Resisting Colonial Fictions and a contributor to Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal. Together we talked about stolen land, cheap life and the fight back taking place on the frontiers of climate destruction. Raj, Tina, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eleanor, and lovely to be able to enter into this discussion with you both. Kia ora. We are at a period in history where the interactions between the human species and what I'm going to very crudely call the non-human world, the rest, seems increasingly contentious as ecological catastrophe unfolds all around us and the future seems violently uncertain. And a lot of that is framed as a crisis in nature, the natural world that is out there and separate from humanity, from civilization. But as both of you have written about, that division, that fundamental division between human and nature is far from a given, it is a historical process, it is something that has been invented rather than something that's a given in the world. I was wondering if you could kick us off, Raj, with talking about that process of inventing nature, of cleaving the human world from the rest of the web of life. Capitalism always needed 
alibis for colonialism. And that colonial process, when it came, for example, to conquest in Africa, came with sanction from the Pope, where uh, you know, infidels could be conscripted to slavery, and the Pope was generally okay with that, and that was the original source for cheap labor in the, the early colonial process of exploitation. But at the same time as this sort of process of you know, an alibi for regarding other kinds of humans as less than the, the, the colonizer, you find this sort of awkward moment in the colonization of the New World where all of a sudden here are people who have no credible reason to think that Jesus exists. And all of a sudden, the sort of papal castigations of Muslims, for example, don't really apply here. And so th there needs to be some other accompanying philosophy that allows the enslavement and exploitation of indigenous people in the new world. And that comes up at the, you know, at the same point that you know, when Columbus first sees the New World, you know, he, he's wringing his hands. If you look at his diaries, he says that he sees these wonderful plants and animals and they could be used for so many foods and for medicines. And the thing that causes him the greatest sorrow is that he does not know how much they are worth. So even by the time Columbus gets to the New World, he's already thinking of nature as an external resource that can be bought and sold. And you know, the, the problem that faces him is not the sundering of human relationships relationship with the rest of the web of life, but instead the problem for him is just a problem of valuation. So the idea that certain lives are worth less than those of, of colonizers was already there by the time that Columbus got to the New World. And then we see the sort of codification of that in a series of philosophers and uh, political philosophers, the zenith of which is Descartes. And sometimes Descartes is sort of presented as someone who invented the idea of humans being separated from nature, but he wasn't really doing that. What, I mean, he was just uh, a, a handy scribe, a sort of codifier of what capitalism and colonialism had already done. Uh, so that's the sort of the, the sort of longer arc of the understanding of the separation between humans and nature. You know, again, we, we, we sometimes hear about Descartes thinking about dogs, for instance, as being the sort of automata. And you know, all he was was a scribe for capital. And I think it helps to remember that because you know, Descartes got a lot of his training from monks whose texts circulated from Mexico back to Europe. And he learned a great deal about the new world. He learned about logic. He, he, he built on ideas that he read that had already been forged in the moment of colonial encounter. And what Descartes was doing was merely sort of writing it up and making it tidy so that colonizers could have this very pleasant understanding of what it was that they were doing to the new world as a kind of civilizational action. Descartes, of course, a philosopher in the 1600s, famous for the phrase of, I think, therefore I am, based on this understanding that there are separate worlds, the material world, the world of flesh and matter and things like that, and the world of the mind. And when we take a look at these sort of high conceptual theories that figure into broader swaths of the history of capitalism, it's almost funny to think about sometimes because we're so used to capitalism being presented and colonialism being presented as these deeply rational systems, right? It's all about facts and logic and numbers on a ledger book and whatnot. And we kind of forget that there are these deeply cosmological claims that are being made underneath it. Tina, could you talk to us a little bit about that, about your thoughts about how the cosmologies of capitalism that we're currently living through are shaped? Sure, Eleanor. And, um, you know, I just... It's too thoroughly agree with everything that Raj had just pointed out that this, you know, this stems from this long history, which is rooted in, you know, Christian domination. 
But also, you know, I would contend that that, you know, the Christian domination is still very present. There became a time when certainly it traversed across into ideologies and the founding, you know, the intellectual movements, the um, the Enlightenment period. The clearest demonstration of that is to have a look at a dollar note in God We Trust over in the United States. It has in God We Trust there written directly on their currency and this expression that, that the Christian God is going to continue to bring forth this manifestation destiny of prosperity at the cost of indigenous peoples and at the cost of the environment. And we see that manifest also in just in general corporate democracy around the world that is underpinned by this idea that, you know, Christianity is going to bring people, European in particular, European Christianity is going to bring people the prosperity that they like. So we see that, you know, for instance, in colonial governments like the New Zealand government, the Christian church opens government every day. Christian leaders, they have significant amounts of um, political capital themselves. They spend quite a bit of time, they have their own lobby time with government leaders. Uh, They're significant landholders. And this is really pertinent, right? now, given that the um, Vatican is currently talking about, I, I wouldn't say the Vatican has repudiated what it's done, it's repudiated what Christians in general have done, but but you know, they, even they struggle to come to terms with what they've done in the past as well. And so, you know, these ideas of Christian supremacy and domination are still present in our political wranglings today, and particularly within corporate democracy, which is the dominant form of democracy that we labor under. And if you have a look at those Christian kind of fundamental ideological underpinnings, they're all hierarchical. They all talk about, you know, they all have this idea of who's at the top and who's at the bottom. Indigenous people are not human. They're not considered human. If we go back through the papal bulls um, that, you know, constitute the doctrine of discovery that Raj was referring to, it says even in those very first papal bulls that you may take, you know, people's lands, possessions, dominions, and their bodies for your use and profit. So this concept of profit was present even in the 1450s in some of these early papal bulls. The concept of profit was there. And in my mind, it's actually always been an economic exercise that has played itself out through the most convenient model you know, at hand at the time. And the most convenient power vessel at the time was Christianity. And then it moved into also intellectual, expanded into intellectual theory. But it's always brought with it this concept of, you know, who gets to sit on the throne in the clouds and then surrounded by this white man with a white beard and a white gown sitting on the throne in the clouds is the archangels. And then under the archangels are the Pope and the and the priests, and then under them are the, the administrators of those papal laws, the British and European monarchs. And then there's different parts of nature, and then there's indigenous and non-white peoples underneath that. So that hierarchy has, you know, been carried throughout the world and throughout the political systems that are underpinned and are still underpinned by these Christian ideas of domination over other peoples and over the environment. And that continues to inform the economic systems also that those governments put in place. 
when we're working with a cosmology whose relations are sort of underwritten through systems of domination, systems of extraction, I'm really intrigued by the work that you've done laying out Maori philosophies of water and offering different relationships that we can conceive of between humanity and the rest of the web of life. For not just Maori, but many other indigenous groups, we had our own forms of government. We had our own legal systems. And a lot of these legal systems and forms of government and ways of managing power were subject to the environment around us and were informed by the environment around us. So just as an example, we have a concept, the maramataka, and it's how we make our decisions about what happens day by day. It's often misconstrued as like looking at the lunar phases, but it's actually looking at the combination of factors between the lunar phase, uh, the environment around you, the way that the water is behaving, the way that the climate around you is behaving, and all of these things inform on a day-to-day basis the decisions that you make as well. And you start to see patterns when you understand the language of these things around you. And so you can start to plan because you're not just subject to the whim of the environment. You've started to understand the language and the patterns and the lifestyle of the environment and you seg yourself into that. And so the maramataka was this deeply and is this deeply complex interwoven set of behaviours of the environment that you plug yourself into, not that you make the environment subject to in terms of you making you making the call and the environment has to somehow understand what you mean and fall into your plans. You're actually understanding the plans of, and the patterns of the environment and making your decisions accordingly. And so that has seen us through, you know, thousands of years. Indigenous nations, like our relations over in Australia, You know, they've had successful ways of managing their lifestyles and working with the environment for 10,000 years successfully without having to break anything. We've lived for, you know, centuries and centuries on these very small islands with very small water catchments, being able to look after significant amounts of people without breaking anything. And then in the last, you know, 200 years, we've managed to break most of our river systems in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The vast majority of our lower level river systems are now unswimmable. And we have a drinking water crisis here. And we've done that in a very short period of time. And when you measure that against the indigenous models of environmental management and decision-making and power wielding, there's very little comparison you can make between the two. I think when we break this down, what I'm talking about is, is relationships. It's, it comes down to, and I know that it, that might sound, you know, um, cheesy or whatever, but I'm just talking about really what this, what we break this down to is the depth of our relationships and being able to invest our time and our energy into the relationships that we have and reframing the relationship that we have with the environment away from one of domination. And that's the other term that we use for the doctrine of discovery is the doctrine of domination. So it's understanding how to live in a way that is more interdependent as as opposed to oppressive over the environment and over each other as well. In the language that we sometimes use to talk about this moment of ecological crisis that we're living through, that relationship of domination, of destruction, is sometimes assumed to be this kind of natural, inherent part of humanity, right? We talk about it in terms of the Anthropocene, as something, a moment of destruction that humans in general have wrought on the planet. 
In uh, History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, Raj, yourself and Jason W. Moore talk about this a lot, reframing this moment and how we can articulate who is doing the destroying and what this tells us, particularly about the category of personhood and how it's played a role in this long process of extraction. I was just going to chime in to agree with Tina and to observe that, you know, the fact that it kind of feels a little hokey to talk about relationship uh, and to talk about all my relations is a symptom of the hegemony of how the capitalist cosmology that insists on our alienation from the rest of the web of life has its tentacles in us in such a way that we're like, oh, it's, you know, we're just a bunch of hippies talking about relations. But in fact, this is a sign of the depth of capitalism's purchase on our imaginations, that all of a sudden it's it's difficult to talk about relations without imagining that this is some sort of Disney movie where I'm related to this being or that being. And, you know, that's just bad biology. I mean, humans are holobionts. We are walking ecologies. You know, there are billions of microbes in us that are not human, that we are host to, that make us possible. And yet, the sort of myth-making and the world-making of capitalism is such that we are able to tell stories about how we are separate from the rest of the world, and if we have any meaningful relationship with other beings, it's as pets or as, you know, anthropomorphized animals that we are in, in some way tend and are the masters of. And that language of mastery is obviously patriarchal and is obviously racist. And our unease with breaking with that language is a sign of how successful capitalism has been. But, you know, here we are on the Verso podcast. Let's talk about that as what it is to feel alienation. And when Marx talks about species being, uh, it is uh, precisely our discomfort with how it is at the moment that we need to push through in order to re-engage with whatever this idea of species being is. And we don't yet have a language for it because we have, by capitalism, been so alienated from it. That's not to say, and I'm using we here in a very general way because your invitation, Alan, is to say, well, not not everyone, uh, and Tina is here to testify that not everyone feels this way. The fact is that capitalism has its grip on me in a way that that it doesn't on Tina. And I'm 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 honored to be on the same podcast as you, Tina. I follow your work and I, I'm so moved by it and I'm so inspired by it. Because when we talk about the Anthropocene, it is to tar indigenous people with a brush that actually you know is entirely unwarranted. It's not indigenous communities that have been destroying the planet. Now you know, again, one doesn't need to wax general or romantic about indigenous communities. I mean here in the United States, the Diné nation, for example, engaged in slavery. And the stories that are told in Diné communities today not only recognize that, but recognize that the ways of knowing the rest of the web of life today come as a recognition of the horrors of what came before. So one doesn't need to sort of wax romantic, but at the same time, one can and should recognize that Anthropocene is not the right word. It should be capitalocene. And that's what Jason W. Moore and I have been banging on about when we're talking about how you know, it's not okay to say Anthropocene because not everyone has contributed to the sixth extinction. And, you know, I mean, there was, there was something I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned earlier on, Eleanor, about the sort of violent uncertainty that faces us. And I just wanted to sort of lean into the word uncertainty there. There's no uncertainty. We know that the planet is... Uh, going to be much worse off in the future than it is today. There is no uncertainty about that at all. The only uncertainty is how bad it's going to be. 
and misnaming the moment that we're in as the Anthropocene is already to close off some of the pathways that could make that violence a little more survivable. We are already going into a world in which climate extremes, extreme weather, but also, again, the processes of climate change combined with the sixth extinction are going to make things much, much worse. The uncertainty, I think, just lies in quite how bad it's going to be observing that not every human and not every human civilization around today is responsible for that is really important. And here in Texas, for example, I I just want to observe how hegemony works here. I mean, here in Texas, my kids have to say the, the Pledge of Allegiance every day. And, you know, Tina, you were mentioning in God we trust. But the other thing that my kids have to say is one nation under God. And here in the United States, we have more than 500 nations. But the daily amnesia about other civilizations, even here on occupied land, is part of the way that that hegemony operates. So I just, again, want to rise to that invitation, Eleanor, by saying that, yes, we are living in a time of a certain kind of uncertainty. We don't know how bad it's going to be, but we, we know for sure that it's going to be bad. Misnaming the engines that drive us towards a deteriorating planet is clearly not part of the solution. I'm really intrigued by how both of your work talks about the process of bordering of bodies, of nations, of oceans, of forests, as something that we're so deeply used to, right? It's this everyday fact of how we interact with the world. But it's also deeply arbitrary. It's a series of cosmological claims and as a series of legal and political facts that we just sort of happen to be wrangling with. The sea is actually a really live example of this. It's sort of boundaried for the purpose of extraction and borderless for the purpose of any kinds of responsibility towards that life that you're extracting from. And as an ecological entity, it really defies comprehension almost according to these deep legal boundaries that have been set up. Sure, yeah. So for our oceans. One of the things that that I still see prevalent today in the management of water crises is that we still tend to pass out oceans from freshwater systems, from atmospheric water systems, and don't look at these things in a cyclical relational pattern very well. We're still struggling with that. And so, you know, one of our stories of creation talks about how in the first teardrop from the sky father, as he was grieving for his wife, our earth mother, came down a creature, the eel, the first of the eels. And in that eel, it then traversed across the landscape and went out to ocean and it helped to heal a relationship between the earth mother and the ocean mother, Wainui Atea, and that sacred relationship and and migratory route of the eel from the mountains, from the river streams down through and out to the ocean and back again is then made sacred because it's, it's very present in our creation stories, right? And so this idea of the, you know, migratory routes of our relations through the river systems out into the ocean systems, as well as the fact that, you know, these creatures came down from the sky as well. And that whole kind of concept, which is also embedded in the way in which we introduce ourselves. So the very way in which we introduce ourselves is through our rivers and our oceans and our mountains. And we come last, our actual names <laughs> that we that we introduce ourselves come last after we talk about the rivers and the oceans and the land that we connect to as well. And so when these things form your identity, that's a completely different way of looking at 
the world as well. And our way of looking at the ocean also is of our moana, is that our moana, first of all, obviously, as I mentioned, was connected to a larger system as a part of a water cycle, but also that it was a great connector. It was not a divider, it was a connector, as a highway, as a way in which we traveled to go and see each other's, you know, our relations. And it was also a sacred place. It was where we carried out our rituals. It was also our food basket, it was a place that fed us. We made children on the ocean and bore children in the ocean as well. And so it's a it's a place of worship, it's a place of provision, and it's a place of transport. And you know, so I guess it, it reminds me a little bit of the nonsensical or duplicitous nature of European colonialism and that we had these concepts of free seas, mare liberum that came out of, again, the 1500s. And that talks about how, you know, the ocean belongs to nobody. But under that colonial idea, the fact that it belongs to nobody tends to create a free-for-all where everybody gets to try and claim the rights to be able to exploit it. So the idea of non-ownership is inherently linked to the ability to be able to exploit because nobody else can claim ownership of it. And then it really becomes about, okay, nobody owns it, but people have the right to manage it. And that sits within the United Nations, their right to be able to manage the high seas. And we now see within that United Nations space, they're allowing deep sea oil drilling as well within these places that are assumed to be, you know, these beneficent, caring spaces that manage the sometimes wayward member states and is impervious to lobbying, all of these kinds of things. But actually in that space is where we're starting to permit drilling in some of the most sacred spaces, the deep seas and indigenous cosmology is where our atua you know, reside in their purest form and the deepest part of the ocean is now being invaded as well. I wanted to pick up a little bit on what Raj had mentioned before about, you know, the Anthropocene and that, you know, that just assumes that all humans are inherently and unavoidably going to create this space. And he's so right. That's not necessarily the case. But also, when we look forward to the future, what that does is that it negates the importance of having Indigenous peoples and Indigenous philosophy Indigenous science and Indigenous ways of knowing and being at the heart of the solution, at the heart of who gets to, you know, whatever the new democracy, whatever the new form of power building and decision making needs to take form. If we're going to assume that it's just a human way of being, that's, you know, going to become the precursor for negating the importance of having Indigenous decision making and all of its skills it's deep, long-standing relationships that can inform solutions at the heart of what our new way of being needs to be. You've both used the particular histories of people who are euphemistically known to history as explorers. Cook, Magellan, Columbus, all of these guys. Uh, that's a way of thinking about history and how it was written by the victors and how, if we could take a look at their actual deeds or why and how they could claim places that were already being occupied by other people, we get a much deeper insight into the processes of economic history that were unfurling around them and that continue to shape the world. Now, not to completely do the reverse side of the coin of the great man theory of history, the vile man theory of history, if you like, uh, but I'm wondering if you guys could talk a bit about those particular individuals and what taking a look at their lives can tell us. I wonder if we could go to Raj first. 
in History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, Jason Moore and I sort of plot the life in particular of Christopher Columbus. He's, he's the bad guy who ties everything together in the book because he's involved in all of the things that we think are characteristic of modern capitalism and also in crisis. You know, the, the, the seven things being cheap nature, cheap lives, cheap work, cheap care, cheap food, cheap fuel and cheap money. And in all of that, uh, you know, as we make the argument throughout the book, Columbus sort of pops up like a boil. And he's, you know, he's there exploring the new world. And again, you know, this, this idea of exploration and occupation, I think, is, is, is very interesting. You know, he already understands his land is being occupied by other people. And when you look at other sort of indigenous cosmologies, the idea of occupation doesn't make sense. You know, it, it is a belonging to the land rather than the land belongs to you that is a much more intelligent and intelligible way of understanding for a lot of indigenous communities that Columbus was ultimately responsible for annihilating. So if you look at Columbus or if you look at Mercator, for example, the, the map maker, he calls himself Mercator because uh, he's very interested in the idea of through ways for, for commerce. Mercator means merchant. And we have Mercator's projection because the land gets distorted in a way that makes the trade lines straight and the land crooked. Again, this gets back to the idea that you were mentioning earlier on about cosmologies. These sort of wandering criminals and conquerors were in the business not just of you know, seizing stuff, but they were very interested in refashioning relations, relations of uh, themselves to the land, the relationships between different lifeways and different beings on that land. And they were very interested in hegemonizing that understanding. That's why cartography is the way that it is. That's why you, know, you have the map with the words, you know, sort of terra nullius on them, because it was very important uh, to understand the map as the sort of key technology and, you know, the, the clock uh, as a, another sort of central capitalist technology that helps to entrench the certain relationships of beings to one another. And you know, again, the hierarchies that Tina was mentioning earlier on. Tina, over to you. I'm really intrigued by how your work wrangles with even just the language in which Teika Amawi is talked about, often being referred to, of course, by its colonial name as the North Island of New Zealand. And you talk about this process of cataloguing and naming and counting as inherently tied up with these historical processes of colonization. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you have a look at the secret instructions for Cook when he was sent you know, across to Tahiti and then to apparently, well, to invade, but in, in the language of the time to discover and explore in the Terra Australis Incognita, the mysterious great southern continent there. The instructions that are inherent there, you can draw a straight line right throughout all of the entitled instructions for all of the invaders, all of the genocidal invaders. I tend to veer away from terms of using the term explore and discovery. It's invasion and genocide, the age of discovery. I term the age of genocide. And we do need to be really mindful of the language that we use and how that kind of reinforces particular ideologies. And that's also true in our um, practices of hero making as well. And so the hero making that has been carried out around Columbus has been, you know, fervent and in place for a long time. It's also, though, undergoing for quite, quite a few years now, is undergoing a reframing, a very successful reframing, being led by, you know, our First Nations brothers and sisters over on Great Turtle Island. 
And, you know, one of my own mentors, Mona Jackson, he would say, you know, the namer of things is the father of things and can also then be said to be the owner of things. And so this process of nomenclature, this process of applying the name to something is another iteration of saying that it's mine. I have the right, I have the entitlement to it. And so when you name something, you position yourself as being dominant over it. You position yourself as the parent. And this idea of being the parent is also, you know, in the infantilizing of nature and the infantilizing of Indigenous peoples is another inherent theme right throughout this story. A really interesting point in history to look at for this is the debates of Valladolid in 1555. And in those debates, you had Bartolome de las Casas, who was, you know, he famously accompanied um, and wrote the account of the invasion of the Indies over with Columbus. So he, he accompanied Columbus. And so he wrote about all of the terrible things that he saw. He was called the champion of indigenous peoples. And his debating opponent was Juan de Sepulveda. And the two parameters of this argument and the debates of Valladolid, they were royal debates, junta, a junta, they were overseen by a jury. And so these debates were really to settle the question of what do we do with these annoying indigenous peoples who are constantly present on all of the lands that we've been promised by God. Now, the parameters of that argument were on the part of Sepulveda was, well, they're not human. You know, we should be waging war against them because they're on our land. And so we should exterminate them. And then on behalf of De Las Casas was, no, they are human, but they are lesser humans like women or children. And so it's our responsibility to bring them to God, you know, in as gentle a way as possible. Now, there are a few things absent in that entire argument, of course, the first one being that we have any sense of equality with other humans, with, with Europeans, but also there's still present this idea that you must Christianize us as well, that, you know, the dominant idea is that you must Christianize us. That's without question as well. And this infantilizing, this idea that we are like women or children, this became the basis of modern treaty making and international relations. This became some of the foundational theory of how you engage with the people around the world and the nations that you're traversing into. And that, that then came to inform a whole heap of treaty making for treaties that are still in place today and international policy that is still in place today and international economic policy. So you can see inherent in, you know, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank policy and the way that they deal with nations of the global south is this continual infantilizing of native peoples and of non-European peoples as well. And so you look at Cook, the instructions that he had were along those lines. You read his journals, he's constantly infantilizing us and he's seen as the best of the bad bunch. But if you read his journals, he talks about how, you know, yeah, it's good to try and make friends, but you can't ever let them think that they've got one up on you. You can't ever let them think that they're at any point better than you. And you must never avoid the the importance of demonstrating superior firepower. And when he did that, he did that by shooting at and killing us, which he did in New Zealand here in Aotearoa, Te Ika Maui, when he came here and named this place New Zealand. He was shooting us at a rate of, you know, three or four a week. 
And so this is the best of the bad bunch. Yeah, absolutely. What an incredibly low bar for success, being better than Columbus by even a tiny whisker. Actually, even that seems sort of monstrous as a way of framing it. I just wanted to thank Tina for bringing up the Valladolid debate because one of the, I mean, one of the things that was central to the resolution of that debate was exactly as, as Tina said it, and th- th- there was a recognition that for indigenous people, yes, they were less than white people, but the, the vehicle through which they might redeem themselves was their labor. The idea was that by being put to work, uh, and sometimes this this work would take a couple of generations. So people would die, but their good work would then be conferred on their children, and then their children might one day have children who might be freed of the requirement to cleanse themselves of of inadequacy and inferiority. But this idea that actually that through being put to work, you can find Christ and find at the same time as finding Christ, find personhood, is. Again, I mean, I'm really grateful, Tina, that you point out that that's exactly what the World Bank does today. It is an idea that through labor and through the extraction of value on the land that has been bonded to indigenous communities, that alienation of people from land and then people from their labor is really an integral part of how this Valladolid debate was resolved. And I, I do think it's important and really striking that the idea that alienated labor was the vehicle through which redemption might occur, not prayer, not not sacrifice, uh, not some sort of, you know, just reading the good book, but it had to be labor, it had to be hard work. I, I think that's very telling as we see the sort of the long consequences of that in the 21st century. When we're talking about De Las Casas, for instance, one of the ways in which he had talked about or one of the, the his suggestions for ameliorating the loss of labor if you were not going to enslave indigenous peoples, he had already at that point started to pass out the indigenous nature of West Africans who had already been enslaved. So his suggestion to the Roman emperor at that time was, you know, oh no, the encomienda system, which was enslaving indigenous peoples over in Great Turtle Island, if we're going to make up for the loss of labor in that space, then we can look to the enslavement of Africans and the West African slave trade there to make up for it. And so there are some ideas that were completely left unchallenged, you know, rafts of ideas that were left unchallenged in in Valladolid. And so, you know, some of those things were, of course, the central idea that all Indigenous peoples must be Christianized, the central idea of, you know, somebody's got to do the work and it's certainly not going to be Europeans as well. And we see some of those things still present today, even in false climate solutions. And I'm going to take to task, you know, EVs now because there's still this, you know, the amount of labor injustice that's tied into EVs, the amount of ecological injustice that's tied into EVs. And we all know who's paying the price for that. Who's paying the price for accessing the the lithium that goes into the batteries? Who's paying the price for the disposal and the waste created by those batteries? Who's paying the price for the labor injustice involved in the creation of those things? Those are all put to the side because the idea is that you just need to shift the labor model you know, and create a green or a blue labor model and not look at these inherent ideas of injustice against the environment, you know, or buying it off with, you know, what they consider to be a slightly less unjust model to the environment that's still going to be taking us to task. And so it's just this bargaining of ideas that's still based on a very racist hierarchy and European-centric hierarchy of belonging and being. And Tina, I mean, here in Austin, 
what one of the local heroes is Elon Musk. And he's managed to get where he is today by sidling in on companies where other people seem to be doing all the work. And when he is running these companies, he runs them into the ground. But he's very proud uh, of the idea that he's going to be colonizing Mars. That's his jam. He is a colonist. And yet, here on Earth, when people point out that the lithium in his car batteries come from destabilizing coups in Bolivia, he replies on Twitter, we will coup who we want. This is, you know, I mean, it's in a sense absolutely a return to this old school understanding of American empire. But again, uh, that, that empire has some very old roots. And he's the poster child for what our new green economy is going to look like. And on Earth Day, that's a pretty template to be looking to. This is again coming back to that idea of how important it is to talk about the ideology at the centre of decision making, because to be honest, corporate democracy is going to eat itself anyway. We're already seeing and you know that around the world during democratic, apparently democratic elections, assassinations, mass riots, insurgency, a lot of violence. And so, you know, first of all, the name is deceptive in and of itself because corporate democracy is anything but democratic. But it's also coming to its end in terms of it's creating a corporate authoritarianism in and of itself. Anyway, and so we're coming to this point, you know, this critical juncture where we have to make a decision about how we wield power because it's going to be forced upon us by nature anyway. Nature's going to break us down. It's going to exercise its ultimate superiority and domination over us, ironically. So it's going to break us down anyway. We're going to have to have these discussions around how we wield power. And at the center of that, we need to place the ideology around how we are going to make these decisions. Because, I mean, if we don't do that, we're just going to keep on fooling ourselves. It's ourselves that we're failing in this space, you know, because we're going to be brought to our knees one way or another through this through this process anyway. I'm really interested by the ways in which lots of these efforts by NGOs, by international bodies, reinstate the terms of alienation and domination that we've been talking about. And they also provide this strangely slippery form of governance that isn't quite a nation state and isn't quite a local effort and it's not quite an NGO that you can particularly put your finger on. A case that I've been reading recently in Biega National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where a so-called conservation effort has involved what are reportedly essentially war crimes against the Twa indigenous people there under the auspices of basically making sure it is quote-unquote safe for future generations. And that is often a euphemism for safe for foreign white tourists to come and take pictures of gorillas whilst Indigenous people see their land and their land rights completely destroyed and their lives put at risk. Now, that has been undertaken by the German government slash German NGOs slash parts of the DRC government and various other international operations, all under the auspices of saving the planet. What on earth do we do about these kinds of operations and these kinds of approaches to conservation? The idea of green colonialism is old. Uh, I mean, here in the United States, we have something called the National Park System, which is sometimes lauded as America's best idea. But Again, it's very interesting to see the sort of long white supremacist history of what passes for conservation activity and what passes for green activity here, which is essentially 
the eviction of people who have been living with and tending landscapes using technologies like, for example, very sophisticated controlled burns, for instance, to be able to stimulate the growth of forests and be able to manage vast swathes of land as folk migrate through different parts of then what gets split up and then occasionally chunked out as bits of national forest. And then in between there are fences that demarcate the bits of, of sort of pasture. The idea that you know, the national park system is an, just a, an unalloyed good is still a founding myth of the environmental movement here in the United States. And I think that, it, it, you know, again, as we think about Earth Day and the ways that humans in the Capitalocene are engaging with the web of life as the sort of thing that you pay the park service in the United States to go into this space to engage with nature. That's just the compounding of a very bad mistake. If we're interested in transformative relationships to the rest of the web of life, then certainly one of the ideas that needs to go is the idea of humans being fenced away from the rest of the natural world. Uh, you know, this sort of half-planet socialism doesn't seem to me to be a very smart move when, again, humans are already part of the web of life. And the sort of the idea of a, a, a sort of tight line between we'll have the humans over here and the rest of the web of life over there is to make the error of saying that humans, all of us, don't have any business being in the rest of that natural wilderness. That what we should do is have half a planet that's a natural park is to extend a bad error that, that was committed in the, the sort of self-congratulatory colonial moments of the United States. So we need to talk here in the United States about land back. And that's not an idea that's terribly popular in the environmental movement because it would require a certain amount of introspection and the recognition of culpability in understanding that actually, you know, the great vistas that folk imagine of the United States natural parks are just a product of colonialism that needs to involve reparation. And the idea of reparation is something that psychologically is very difficult for, you know, for, for folk living in the United States to, to wrap our heads around. But you know, if we're going to have a livable planet, then reparation is really important. Because again, the, the, reparation is a part of what it would mean to have a world of care and repair. I mean, it's a sort of bumper sticker understanding, but the idea of a reparative relationship to the planet from folk who exit the sort of capitalist modality. And if we imagine what a post-capitalist relationship to the planet might look like, it would have to be reparative. So again, I mean, this is a way just of saying, look, a lot of shitty ideas masquerade as good environmentalism, but that's because environmentalism is, is itself premised on the idea that humans over here and the environment over there and, you know, one should take care of the other, as opposed to recognizing the relationships that Tina was talking about right at the beginning, that, that actually that there's a deep mutualism between humans and the web of life. And it is the cultivation of deep relationships and deep meaningful relationships between humans and the rest of the web of life that we should be aiming for, rather than segregating humans from the rest of the web of life as certain modes of understanding of, of how it is that the, the 21st century might look proposed. Tina, I'd love to talk to you more about this because the idea of indigeneity sometimes in kind of an abstract way is often caught up in these discussions. And there's talk sometimes, including from international bodies and governments and NGOs and whatnot, of listening to indigenous people in ways that can feel sometimes like they just reinstate the same terms of extraction. 
the idea or the concept and, and definition of what it is to be Indigenous has become heavily, you know, politicised and people talk about it as being just, you know, the, the identity of a people who are there prior to colonisation. There is another way to understand what it is to be Indigenous, and that is a way of knowing, being, doing and relating that grows out of the soils and the waters and the ecologies upon which you are standing. So it is inherently a localised notion of being. And the knowledge systems, it's replete throughout the throughout your language, it's replete throughout the kinship structures, it's replete throughout your architecture, throughout your economies, is that a way of being that relates to the place that you are standing. And so this idea of indigeneity that comes out of this long-standing relationship then infers that that relationship brings value into how you live your life and the decisions that you make and how you arrange yourselves and relate to the challenges that are going on around you as well. And it's that definition of indigeneity that we should be focusing upon when we're talking about who gets to make decisions and how power is wielded. And this is the case whether I'm talking to a government or an NGO who comes in with its latest great idea about you know, what we should all be doing. Since the beginning of this year, we've had two major cyclones where I live, four flood events, and in the last 24 hours, we've had two tornadoes rip through two you know, communities here in Aotearoa. And we're still trying to work our way through the devastation and through that and over the last few years, we've been dealing with these pine slash floods where, you know, the rivers are choked full of pine and woody debris that is taking out houses and communities as it makes its way out to the sea. Now, we didn't all just wake up one day here in, in Aotearoa and Te Ika Maui and decide, oh, pine's the way to go. We were led to believe that if you planted pine beside your rivers, that it would keep the rivers stable. Now, why do we need to keep the rivers stable? Because people came before that and said, you should clear all of that native bush off there and turn it into pasture so that you can participate in the colonial economy. And so these issues that we're beset by right now were informed by colonial scientists who came here and told us that this was a solution. And you wonder why people don't have that, you know, the, the crisis of trust in the social institution of science. You know, that was cultivated over centuries of scientists who came here with a colonial agenda to tell us to plant these trees, which would then be extracted, which would then participate into their economies as well. But, you know, we, of course, Indigenous peoples have our own science and that was oppressed in that process that would have told us, no, that's not that's not the plants that you need to be putting there. And of course, the earth determined itself what were the best plants for that area over hundreds and thousands of years. And so the long-standing relationship that has observed what plants perform best in what contexts and in what solutions and what to do in different areas, the long-standing relationship that will inform you around how to solve that problem is the indigenous relationship. And so that, that concept of indigeneity that relates to this long-standing relationship and the knowledge and the forms of being and doing and knowing and relating that, um, that I think is most helpful in that context, even when you're talking to NGOs. Because, you know, when I've been in international forums, I'm heading off to another one on 
Saturday to the uh, Permanent Forum for Indigenous Issues, but we go into spaces in the UN, some of our most of our strongest opponents against maintaining our traditional food systems and having land back, as Raj mentioned, you know, land back and racism against Indigenous peoples generally lasts all the way up into the point where it requires some kind of material sacrifice or handing over of power. That's where the sympathy always runs out. And so same with NGOs. So long as you can get a contract and get income to pay for everybody, oh yeah, they're very sympathetic and they want to work with you, particularly if you'll put your face on their campaign because they understand the value of a brown Indigenous face on their campaign. But as soon as you start to tell them to hand over power, as soon as it comes to some kind of material kind of dispossession for them, or as soon as we start talking about Lambic, that's where the, the phone calls dry up, the emails stop being returned, and the door to the meeting rooms and sitting around the table, they all close or they look for somebody else who's easier to deal with. That is fascinating and horrifying and unsurprising all in a single breath. Tina, I would love to know a little bit more about your own activism within and around these areas. You're involved in local anti-plastic activism, anti-plastic waste activism, and I'm really curious as to how, um, I guess, economies of waste can tell us a lot about how power operates and who is having to deal with the waste and how. The ideas around economies of waste ties into exactly the same story that Raj and I've been talking around in in terms of domination and hierarchies and who matters and who doesn't matter. And so, you know, the right to exploit and extract from is mirrored in the right to pollute and to turn into spaces of waste and, and who is treated as a piece of waste, even as humans, when you are treated as a form of waste as well. So you're treated as some kind of, you know, collateral, you know, right throughout this, whether or not you're collateral in, in having your lands extracted from or whether or not you're treated as collateral as a piece of the unjust or slave labor market, or whether or not you're treated as collateral when it comes to having your systems and your food systems, you know, derailed through the economy or uh, polluted through waste. All of these things tie into this broader idea around who matters and who doesn't, and who's just a, a part of this larger system of profit that is denoted in, you know, the these papal bulls from the beginning. And so creating these linear systems of consumption where you extract, well, largely you extract from Indigenous peoples or you extract within a system that has been determined again by these international financial institutions born out of a racist history of colonial governments and colonial extraction. So you look at how Bretton Woods Conference created these global international institutions which have gone on to create these international economic policies that continue to drive ecological devastation and the idea of free trade and and what that means. These clauses and international trade agreements which allow for corporations to sue governments if they have ecologically protective laws and and how these things frame the global economy. And you can see consistently the the waste product of that, the people who are treated as nothing, as pieces of waste, are the First Nations, are the Indigenous peoples and their lands and their waters. 
and and that's true all the way through to actual waste, which is, you know, you look at the global dumping ground for electronic vehicle batteries is in the Pacific, uh, Pacific nation, Pacific islands, who are carrying a lot of this, you know, horrible waste, electronic battery waste. And, and these things are, are not highlighted. They're expected to just put up with it. At the same time as we're also the space that holds all of this knowledge to try and look after one of the two major lungs of the planet. The Mwananuya Kiwa is one of the two major lungs of the planet and it's being heavily polluted. And the people with the knowledge systems to be able to care for it are, are being, you know, are dispossessed of the ability to be able to do that through these systems as well. And again, it's these international forums where a lot of the bullying takes place that marginalizes these what they call small island nations or big ocean nations from being able to step into their space and and utilize those solutions. So as an example, you know, we we carried out some research in the past couple of years talking to our island nations around how do you experience plastic waste? Well, a lot of them have like they understand the problem. They understand the solution. They go into an international space to try and, and promote their solution and they're consistently drowned out by the larger nations or they're intimidated by larger nations and NGOs because they've been economically oppressed in that space and so they've had to rely upon NGOs and these larger nations for funding. And so they're intimidated in those international spaces and are not able to put forward their solutions for fear of, of losing that funding, that economic oppression, which is founded upon this long-standing economic privilege within that international forum that was created through the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944. That long-standing kind of privilege in that space of the larger nations was forged by these three or 400 years of economic extraction from Indigenous nations in the first place. So they've taken this privilege created through centuries of extraction created a global economic system out of it and then exploit that to intimidate smaller nations that hold the secrets to being able to look after these these spaces that are being polluted you know and they're being forced into purchasing even more plastic they can't even you know put in place economic policies in their nations to ban importing plastic because they'll get economically penalized in these larger forums so the stories of waste and obviously when I'm talking about the plastic industry, I'm talking about the oil and gas industry. It's the same thing. They just pivot from one to the other. So, you know, and we saw particularly throughout the pandemic and, and ongoing that that has been capitalized upon by the plastics industry to extract even more oil or to create ethylene corporations and factories. And again, the people who are made sick even just in the geolocation of those industries, are largely black communities in the United States, uh, largely indigenous communities as well, who are made very sick by that. So all of those things are, you know, a neat allegory of the systems of extraction that have been put in place through colonialism. Right. I'm really interested in your study of work as a way of understanding this dilemma of waste, the ways in which corporations will use waste as a sort of social process to kind of stand in for the kind of labour that they don't want to pay for, right? Coca-Cola does not want to pay for the work involved in processing the kind of plastic waste that their business model relies on. 
And therefore that work and those consequences are foisted onto other people, onto the non-human web of life as well. And I'm wondering how we might take a look at what kinds of work need to be done to really start brokering solutions to these problems. If you've studied a bit of economics, you might have come across the idea of externalities, something that society bears a cost, uh, but that cost is socialized, whereas the profits are privatized. And if you look at the food system in the United States, for example, there was a study recently where it was observed that we spend $1.1 trillion on food. That's the, the, the revenue to the food industry. But the externalities in terms of you know, the costs to the environment and the costs to humans, particularly in terms of human health, were $2.1 trillion. So we spend $1.1, but we cause $2.1 trillion. So the real cost of food is north of $3.2 trillion, and it's more than that. So the bait and switch here is the idea of the externality. When something is externalized, what that is a sign of is that the food industry and capitalism in general, but the food industry in particular, has been very successful in getting other people to pick up the tab. And if we are to have a transformative engagement with the web of life, then the, the kinds of work that we need to be recognizing are not going to be the ones that are wage work with the, you know, the, the sort of vast an intended downstream footprint in terms of externalities, but instead we'll need to move to different kinds of recognition of what counts as work. And in, you know, in, in, in the literature, we have the distinction between productive and reproductive labor. But uh, I do think that this idea of reproductive labor sort of pulls us up short because the work of care is, it seems to me, what it is that we need to, to, to be orienting towards. Now, this, this care work is not just about humans caring for one another, though that's incredibly important. But it is also the work of care, of, uh, of caring for the web of life and tending the web of life and being tended in turn. We can only recognize that we're caring if we recognize the relationships and our ability to recognize the relationships has been sundered by this capitalist cosmology. So uh, when I talk about work, whether it's Jason Moore and I talking about a, a reparation ecology or Rupert Murray and I talking about the, the sort of uh, the, uh, a care revolution, drawing on ideas from some of our comrades in Germany and from indigenous communities, the idea of a care work that is required cannot happen under capitalism because capitalism immediately not only segregates productive from reproductive labor, but then ignores a whole other sort of host of work and care that lies beyond the domain of reproductive labor. So all of this is to say, look, if, if we're interested in a transformative kind of approach to dealing with what gets counted under capitalism, then we can't just sort of move towards a sort of light green economics where all of a sudden we're internalizing the externalities. That's merely to sort of perfect a mode of capitalist extraction that sometimes you see in thinking around the circular economy. I mean, you know, there are people who are arguing for the circular economy on Earth Day who are quite happy for capitalism to continue. And the way that they'll make capitalism continue is by, like, for example, again, in, in the food industry, what Biden's excited about is recognizing that methane is a waste product from concentrated animal feeding operations. Let's give a subsidy to concentrated animal feeding operations to turn pig and turn methane from this horribly extractive and destructive industry into a carbon credit. And then we'll make this whole process circular. That's bullshit. 
So uh, I, I want to be clear here that, that I, I think the circular economy itself is something we need to steer away from. We need much so much more revolutionary, and the care, you know, the, 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 the sort of care revolution points the direction for that to happen. I just really wanted to celebrate what Raj is pointing out in terms of the the, the idea of of what it is to of what work is and what labor is and but also how deeply internalized we have come. I think this is a part of our challenge in indigenous spaces is a part of our decolonization process is unpicking this idea of you know, the, the work ethic. Everywhere I traveled around the world, everybody's going, Māori are such good workers. They're such hard workers, you know, especially when they're like construction workers or manual and manual labourers. just drive me up the, up the wall because the idea is that, you know, we're destined to be manual labourers and that manual labour must look like us working crazy hours and, you know, horrible conditions as well, and that we'll just put up with it. And very recently, just a recent example that you made me think of, Rash, is our our health organization that we started, which started out of COVID. The first iteration of it was us going out on the road with stop signs and stopping people from coming into our tribal territory, our iwi territory with COVID. And then we progressed from that into doing, you know, lockdown care. Then we learned how to do vaccinations and then we became a vaccination space within a vaccination desert. We became vaccinators. And then after that, we became a, a holistic health organization. Now, every Friday, we put that aside. We put every Friday aside to commit to relationships in the community. And it has been a long process to get people to get there. But hang on a second. So is Friday like a day off? We're like, no, no, it's work. And they're like, okay, but we're just picking up rubbish by the beach with, you know, or having barbecues with the communal or going out to help people with their trees or, you know, just, you know, little things like that. You're like, yeah, that's actually, we're going to be spending one day a week investing in our relationships with the community, giving back to Papatua Nuku, to our earth mother, you know, doing some cleanup, doing some river work, doing things like that. And then that, you know, our experiences and our relationships that we forge on that one day a week, which is, you know, people are having a hard time, even funders or the government is having a hard time understanding that that's actual work, but that informs the nature and the quality of the work that we do every other day of the week as well. But that has been a long process of getting people to understand, no, that is actually, that's work. We're doing that as a part of our work is to, is to you know, put a one-fifth of our week aside to invest in relationships. We carry that through in every other day as well. But these are the types of things that I think, you know, ideas that we need to grow, these ideas of care as labor. But it also points to what under the current capitalist system is assumed to be volunteer work, what's valued and what's not valued. And it's constant, especially when it comes to recovery from a climate crisis or recovery from a storm event. You see, it's just assumed that people People will step in and do a lot of that work voluntarily. I don't want to say that we should be monetizing and capitalizing all of that, but it speaks to within a capitalist system the value that's placed on that work as opposed to other forms of work, which they would never consider or, or expect people to be carrying out for free. Yeah, it really challenges ideas that we have about what it is to participate in a democracy and what it is to do the work of self-governance, if you like. And I'm really curious as to how we reframe 
what that democracy looks like and what governance or ownership of the commons might be like and how to draw links between these local economies of care and the global scale of the problems that we're facing. Tina, I'd love for you to come in on that. These ideas of the economies of care, probably going to finish on this note that Raj and I started about, which was, you know, it comes down to these ideological ideas that we need to start turning into a reality. So right now where I live, we're talking about economies of monarchy and monarchy essentially means to care for somebody, but it also means to honour the inherent mana that they have as well, the inherent respect that people are due and the inherent respect that nature is due and how to honour that in your economic practice. So what this means is, you know, how do you redistribute your own wealth or your own abundance? And what is the value of that when it comes to recovering, for instance, from a climate crisis, from a natural disaster event? How do you use these redistributive economies to be able to stabilize your community, restabilize your community after a very traumatic event? And then what does it play? What role does a redistributive economy of care play also in charting your pathway forward? And then how does this also relate to the process of recentering your world in the space that is most heavily localized. So we understand imperialism and colonialism is an inherently centralizing process, right? So it extracts from one place and channels resources and channels wealth to another space. And then that other space gets to infantilize everybody else and say, okay, you get this bit, you get this bit, and I'll make all the rules. So the antithesis of that is recentering power, recentering resource back into local spaces and having redistributing power so that it's centered in that local space, but also the power over local resources and wealth and the definition of your economy needs to also be decentralized and relocalized because climate is going to do that anyway. It's going to break down the trunk lines. It's going to break down all of these kind of centralizing frameworks and it's going to localize all of that anyway. So what are the systems that are most helpful for us in that eventuality? It's going to be localized economies of care that redistribute your wealth. So the simplest example of that is you go to Tangaroa, you go to the Moana, you go to the ocean. I had to step that through a few different translations. You have to go to the ocean, you go fishing, you're blessed, you get an abundance of fish. You don't just go back and put all of that fish in your freezer and then decide, oh, you know, I might share one or two. On your way home, you were giving that fish out. And we understand that those economies of care also prioritize those most in need. So you redistribute to the elderly, you redistribute to single mothers, you redistribute to the disabled people in your community, you redistribute to those who are most in need, and you share it out amongst your community. And then when you get home, you have enough for yourself and your family. So that is a simple economic process that is actually quite economically destabilizing for capitalism as well. And so I think we need to look at these, again, these traditional redistributive modes, deliberately politicize them and recognize the political and economic potency of redistribution and traditional models of care and look at how that's going to perform both in the context of decolonization, but also in the context of a climate crisis. 
Raj, I'm wondering how you begin to describe more positive relations between humanity and the rest of the web of life, because we know we don't want to rearticulate terms of domination, but what might we be talking about here instead? Belonging, stewardship, guardianship, ownership. How would you describe that? I want to go back to something Tina was mentioning earlier on, I mean, not just in terms of the relationships of care, but also to see this as opposed to NGOs, to a certain professionalised understanding of where humans fit in a transition towards revolutionized society. Uh, yeah, NGOs clearly are, are the enemy here. What's the opposite of an NGO? It's, it's a social movement. Uh, and if, if you're interested in understanding uh, what it's like to be engaged in these acts of commoning, then being part of a social movement is the first step in that sort of material transformation, but also the sort of transformation of your consciousness in engaging with the rest of the web of life. Now, you know, uh, I'm sure that there are listeners uh, right now going, yeah, but what about the class struggle? Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, the I mean, the, the response here is, well, look at the movements that are taking this seriously. There are movements of working class, indigenous and non-indigenous people around the world who are open to the idea of indigenous science, for instance. One of my favorite examples is from the Abatlali Basem Jondolo Shack Dweller movement in South Africa. This is one of the largest social movements in South Africa. It's 110,000 people who are members now. And they have been engaging with place-based learning. But if, if you go to a a shack settlement, particularly one of the best ones, Ekinana, which means Canaan, the promised land. It's on land that is in the interstices of settled bourgeois land and public land that's taken care of by the parks keepers. This is land that is, you know, to, to speak to, to Tina's issue, this is land that is, you know, filled with refuse, with trash. And on this land, shack dwellers have created this amazing agroecological space that is characterized by rich relationships between humans and plants and animals and the rest of the web of life. But also, really importantly, it has a creche, it has a school, and it has a cooking space where people are engaged in these acts of care, either by cooking the stuff that comes off the land or teaching one another and engaging in science to be able to, to forge these new kinds of human relations. And it's very telling that, you know, in, in this movement of, as I say, 110,000 people, it is on that land in particular where these new forms of consciousness are being forged that the most state violence has been meted out. Three people have been killed there in the past year or so. And those murders are part of, you know, the ongoing war against indigenous people, but also against working class movements that want to reconnect the working class to the web of life in ways that are about land occupation in particular, right? The land is really important. You can't have a commons without somewhere to do it. And you can't have a commons that is owned. It is an occupied space that's always precarious under capitalism. So whether it's Abatlali in South Africa, or whether it's the MST, who's seeing a huge resurgence in land occupations, the landless rural workers movement in Brazil, who under Lula have now occupied vast areas of land, including land, incidentally, from one of the, the, the good green companies, uh, Susano, for instance, you know, that, that, that had traded on how nice it was being to the trees. It's a eucalyptus plantation, it's a monoculture. Of course, this is you know, an annihilation of life. You've only got this one bloody thing. And instead, the MST are coming in after having 
having built these relationships of commonality, of learning how to common, these are working class communities, seizing the land, recognizing that the land is precarious as they are. And th th this idea of a sort of precarious relationship to land is a relationship that isn't about ownership, but it is about being in a place and developing the deep relations that Tina was talking about. These movements are schools for the kinds of social change that we're interested in. And these are movements of uh, folk who are absolutely, I mean, there's no other way of describing people other than, you know, the front line of the working class. And I do think that there's no in principle difference between understanding that there is indigenous science for everyone to learn and to recognize that the, the working class are in, in the vanguard of that struggle, just as an empirical fact. And uh, I, I think that that's really interesting if we're, if we're interested in transforming our consciousness so that we can you know, reconnect with the planet, then you, that's not something you sit on a couch and do. That's something that is part of the practice and the praxis of movement organizing and revolutionary movement organizing at that. Yeah, I guess if there's one final moment, I think, you know, for us to all be aware of as a message to leave us with, it's that, you know, these systems of extraction and exploitation have become incredibly sophisticated at presenting themselves as false solutions. And, you know, Raj has given us so much rich reflection on what that looks like in relation to NGOs, you know, even in the most recent apparent repudiation by the Vatican, it also wanted to speak about, you know, its own beneficence in that space and how it's been a defender of Indigenous rights. But this is apparently within the context of setting a standard for apologising for, you know, the harm that it's created against the environment and Indigenous peoples. We see a lot of colonial governments and international forums where colonial governments gather, also presenting their own beneficence and their own good intent. We see a lot of that in the COP meetings as well. And they will talk about terms like co-governance, but avoid the term land back. And so we need to be really aware, I think this has been a really strong theme throughout this discussion, perhaps unintentionally, be really aware of the um, sophistication and the co-option of good intent and, and apparent environmental beneficence. And we need to really hold strong on what that needs to look like and be uncompromising in, you know, these concepts of what climate justice is, you know, because I hear climate justice now being used as a way to slow down decarbonisation and talk about, oh, you know, actually climate justice means we need to look after the jobs and consider as, instead of investing in in economies or investing in, in climate solutions, they're using it to slow down decarbonisation. And so we need to be uncompromising in some of these concepts around Indigenous rights. Stop putting that to the side as something that's nice to have. Uh, be uncompromising in discussions around anti-racism. Be uncompromising in concepts around land back and start declaring that these things need to be a priority now not put off into the later, you know, stages and start talking about, you know, really harmful ways in which power is wielded now and start taking on the larger conversations now as well instead of tinkering around the edges but still maintaining these very harmful power systems. Kia ora. Thank you for listening and thanks again to our wonderful guests Tina Ngata and Raj Patel for sitting down with me to unravel questions about Indigenous land rights, green colonialism and communities of care. 
Join us next time when I'll be talking to Tarek Ali and Priyam Gopal about the life and crimes of Winston Churchill and the making of British identity. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.